0: Welcome back to the Ridley Institute podcast. I'm your host. My name is Sam Forniker, and you've joined us today for another installment of our series, The New Parker Society. I'm very happy today to be rejoined by my friend Jake Griesel. Alice Solio Evans, uh, whom many of you will know from previous episodes, is away, having just had a beautiful little girl. She can't be with us today. uh, But... um, Filling in her very capable shoes is another friend of ours, uh, Steve Tongue. Um, Jake, Steve, welcome, guys.
1: Hey, nice Thank to be you. here. <laughs>
0: Great to be here. Uh, Steve, why don't, why don't you just, since um, you're new to our listeners, why don't you just give us a little bit of background? Tell us who you are. Um, uh, fill us in, give us the juicy deets.
1: <laughs> the juicy deets. Uh, well, first of all, apologies for my broad Australian accent um, for those listeners. You can't understand it. I'll try and speak slowly um, because it takes
0: <laughs> – my
1: experience as international here is it takes a little while to to cut through the um, – I don't, I don't think I can call it a drawl. That's uh, the that's Southern American drawl. What do we call the Australian, Australian twang? I'll go with that.
0: Jake, do you understand a word he's saying?
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm really struggling here, Steve. What are you saying? <laughs> and I'm talking in plain English. I'm English. Brought out my Australianisms yet? I've got a few of them, but we'll, <laughs> I'll hold that off. Um, so, as, as a, you can tell, I'm an Aussie. I come from Sydney, uh, born and raised here in Sydney. Um, I, I grew up in a Christian family, uh, which is really uh, a great blessing. Um, so there wasn't, there hasn't been a moment in my life I, I don't think, where I haven't known Jesus as Lord. However, I'm sure many listeners out there can resonate. Uh, With my experience in terms of the older I got uh, and and the more into God's word, uh, Jesus became clearer to me and it was about having a relationship with the risen Lord rather than just knowing doctrine uh, and uh, the Lord has been very kind in revealing himself uh, to me at different points in my life. Um, So that's kind of my Christian faith. Uh, I met Sam, Jake, Alice uh, and many other great um, Brothers and sisters, uh, while studying a PhD in Cambridge, um, feels like a long time ago now. Um, when did I, start? I started, 2013, 2014, uh, I was studying a PhD in the Edwardian Reformation, and my um, uh, key argument was about ecclesial, uh, cle- uh, sorry, evangelical ecclesiology and liturgical reform. So I was looking at Cramner, uh the guy we're looking at today in the podcast. Thinking about how do you take the concept of an invisible church, the fellowship of believers uh, in one spirit, one baptism, one faith, and how do you materialise that into the, uh, the visible church? What you do on Sundays as a congregation comes together. How do you wrestle with the tension between those who are saved and those who are not saved and yet in the same congregation, and obviously, that's um uh, knowledge that God has rather than us. Um, but uh, Cramner and, and the other uh, 16th century reformers were wrestling with those kind of questions, and um, it was just really edifying to, to get stuck into that, yeah. Um,
0: yeah, well, Steve, really, i um, glad you're with us, brother. Thank you for joining us for this. I, uh, you, you mentioned Steve mentioned, uh, everyone that we are going to be focusing on. Cranmer today, and that's absolutely right. We're um, we're hoping to actually do two of these New Parker Society installments on Cranmer today. We're going to be uh, focusing (laughs) on Cranmer's work in the uh, the homilies, one of uh, the the Anglican formularies, the kind of authoritative, um, uh, wonderful gospel-centered bits of of the English Reformation heritage that we have as Anglicans. Um, next time we will be focusing more specifically on, uh, Cranmer's works in the, the, Parker Society Library itself. Um, but we, we really wanted to focus on a, on a, on a different, uh, genre than we've done thus far, namely, namely the sermon. Um, so before we jump in to, uh, to the homilies, let's get a little bit on, uh, Cranmer. Jake, uh, Jay, can I pass the ball over to you and get us rolling with, with a bit on Cranmer's life for the listener who knows, um next to nothing about the great reformer.
2: Sure, so Thomas Cranmer is often described as the architect of the English Reformation. He served as the Archbishop of Canterbury under Henry VIII and under Edward VI before the succession of Mary I ultimately led to his execution. Cranmer was born in 1489 in Nottinghamshire and he studied at Jesus College in Cambridge. He took his BA and MA there before becoming a fellow, meaning an academic, at the college in 1515. Cranmer soon got married, which meant that he had to leave his fellowship at Jesus College and was no longer eligible for the priesthood. But sadly, his wife died during childbirth, and so Jesus College reinstated him as a fellow. And there at Jesus College, Cranmer excelled in biblical studies and theology, and was firmly grounded in humanism, the study of the humanities. And he was ordained as a priest and became one of the university's preachers before taking his Doctor, Doctor of Divinity degree in 1526. And Cramer rapidly and unexpectedly rose to prominence through his role in finding a solution to King Henry VIII's great matter, the king's great problem of finding a way to annul his marriage to Catherine of Aragon, which would ultimately, long story short, lead to Cranmer becoming consecrated as Archbishop of Canterbury in 1533, without having been a bishop before. And subsequently, we all know uh, King Henry broke with the Roman Catholic Church, though he remained opposed to Protestantism, at least Protestant doctrine throughout his life. But by contrast, Cranmer's personal views had become inclined very much towards the burgeoning reformed Protestant movement in broader Europe. But the situation under Henry VIII prevented him from being able to do much towards shaping the English church in a Protestant direction. But once Henry VIII died and the Protestant boy King, uh, King Henry VI, sorry, Edward VI came to the throne Cranmer was able in stages to shape the Church of England in a decidedly reformed Protestant mold. And the most lasting monuments that Cranmer bequeathed to us from the Reformation, as you yourself touched on, Sam, uh, are undoubtedly the Church of England's formularies. Cranmer was the main man behind the Book of Common Prayer, which provided a common Protestantized liturgy for the English nation in their own language. He was also the man behind the ordinal, which maintained the threefold clerical offices of deacon, priest and bishop. Also, the 42 articles, which would later under Elizabeth be revised or modified as the 39 articles, which we still have today. And, of course, what we're looking at today, the first book of homilies, the official sermons of the Church of England, which was designed to propagate the doctrines of the Reformation all across England. And when people nowadays speak of Reformed or Reformation Anglicanism, what they essentially have in mind is faithful adherence to these doctrinal and liturgical standards of the English Reformation as established under the leadership of Archbishop Cranmer.
0: Mm. Yeah. Thank you, Jake. So Cranmer, I mean, in addition to all of that, he's also quite famous for the way in which he died, isn't he? Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Sure. So after the untimely death of the boy king Edward VI, Mary Tudor took the English throne and reverted the English church back to Roman Catholicism. The new regime under Mary targeted Protestants and especially high profile Protestants, and hundreds of them were martyred under her, which earned the queen the enduring nickname of Bloody Mary. Cranmer had not only been instrumental in the humiliating annulment of Henry VIII's marriage to Catherine of Aragon, who was the mother of Queen Mary, but he had also been directly involved in the failed attempt to ensure the accession of the Protestant Lady Jane Grey to the English throne instead of the Roman Catholic Mary. Long story short, along with his fellow Reformation bishops Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, Cranmer in 1553 was imprisoned at the Tower of London for sedition and for maintaining Protestant doctrine, especially his rejection of the Popish mass. In April 1554, the following year, Cranmer, Latimer and Ridley were all transferred to Oxford, where they remained imprisoned while awaiting trial for heresy. And a year and a half later, on the 16th of October 1555, His friends, Latimer and Ridley, were sentenced to death and burned at the stake for heresy there in Oxford. And Cranmer was actually taken to a tower in order to watch them burn to death. Mm. Latimer and Ridley remained faithful to the end, and we can only imagine uh, what their martyrdoms would have left as an impression on Cranmer. And with uh, Latimer and Ridley now uh, out of the way, the focus now turned to Cranmer. And he was put under immense pressure to recant his Protestant views. And he cracked under this pressure and formally recanted his Protestant views. He affirmed the the Pope's authority and he was publicly and humiliatingly defrocked from holy orders. But this was not enough to spare his life. Queen Mary was determined to make a public example of him and to have him executed. And to make his recantation all the more public, Cranmer was brought to St. Mary's, the university church there in Oxford, to make a final public recantation of his Protestant views, which he had previously so avowedly maintained and promoted. The date was the 21st of March, 1556, and it would be the last day for him on earth. But what transpired was a public relations disaster for the Marian regime, and came as a complete shock to the tribunal and the watching audience. Instead of vindicating popery by reading out the prepared recantation, Cranmer went off script and actually denounced the written recantations he had made earlier. He said that those recantations that he had written earlier, contrary to the Reformation truths, had been written against the truth that he harbored in his heart and still believed in his heart to be true. And then he also denounced the Pope as Antichrist. Very famously, he declared that the same hand by which he had written those recantations earlier, that same hand would go into the flames first. The audience was gobsmacked. Cranmer's speech was cut short and he was summarily dragged to the same spot where Latimer and Ridley had been burned six months earlier. And like them, he was subjected to the same horrible execution. And true to his word, Cranmer thrust his hand into the flames first, and his final words were, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Subsequently, Cranmer came to be revered by English Protestants, not only for his central role as the chief architect of the English Reformation, but also for sealing his commitment to the truth of the Protestant Reformation by dying a martyr's death in the flames.
0: Mm. So, Jake, I, uh, so I mean, built into all of that, right? Is it is easy to see why Cranmer is such a massively significant figure in the in the history of Anglican thought, right, or of Reformation thought, generally, and. So I just I, I want to take a second. I want to think about why Cranmer remains that significant and and actually controversial figure, right? Still within Anglican circles, and I think you see that play out in a, a couple of ways, right? Officially, on the one hand, uh, symbolically on the other. Um, so officially, you've said Cranmer; he was the first Archbishop of Canterbury under um, uh, uh, under under Henry, at least in the in the kind of run up to the to the act of supremacy. So Cranmer's appointed Archbishop of Canterbury, 1532, prior to the act of supremacy in 1534, which as you've said, severed England's ecclesiastical ties with Rome. Then Cranmer, again, as you've said, central compiler, stroke editor, stroke in some cases, author of the Book of Common Prayer. So he, he stands as the architect of the, um, of the Reformation Anglican stroke prayer book tradition, right? Okay. So from a political, certainly an ecclesiastical perspective, Cranmer exercised the widest influence of the the English reformers. um, So much so that one historian can say that to discredit Cranmer was to discredit the Protestant cause. Um, So after Cranmer died, Nicholas Harpsfield, we're going to meet Harpsfield in a little bit. He was the conservative author, uh, that is traditionalist author, of the homily on the misery of mankind, uh, we think. Harpsfield published a book called Cranmer's Recantations to smear Cranmer's reputation, right, right from the word go, right after his execution. So we see in that official capacity, Cranmer's um, kind of controversial significance, but then symbolically, and maybe more relevant for those of us who have followed, you know, followed Cranmer centuries after, Mm -hmm. Cranmer represents very clearly the English evangelical understanding of the gospel. So Ashley Nolston, such a beautiful job drawing this out in his work on divine allurement, right? Um, for Cranmer, it's not fear, but gratitude for God's lavishly bestowed grace, which regenerates the power to love, which is, by the way, on Sunday, I, I preached John 20, 19 to 23, um, <laughs> peace replacing fear. I mean, it's a very, it's a very Johannine theme, this um, Cranmerian understanding of the gospel. Cranmer also represents, I think, in a nutshell, some of the big questions that those of us who are interested in Reformation or post-Reformation history think about a lot, because of course, Cranmer's life, uh, as you just said, it was cut short. So, we we think about questions like well what would have happened if Cranmer had lived would there have been Anthony Milton's made this point um the historian w- would there have been a, f- a further prayer book revision um, maybe Steve you could speak to that in a little bit you know uh, <laughs> w- what if what if the um what would have happened if the Reformatio Legum Ecclesiasticarum this ultimately abortive project for full scale revision of English canon law along the lines of evangelical teaching what what would have happened if that had come to fruition. Um, I think those are all really interesting things that someone ought to write a Philip K. Dick-style alternative history novel about, um, but they're the sorts of questions that Cranmer represents and has bequeathed to us. And then just what, one more thing before we shift gears. Cranmer, but because of all of this, represents the symbolic battleground, I think, as well as you know, he's, got the, he's got as much of a claim as anybody else does to representing the symbolic battleground for questions about Anglican identity uh, today. Right. It's why it's so significant that he was indeed picked up in uh, these 19th century projects like the Parker Society Library. Um, and, of course, because the Book of Common Prayer has garnered more widespread agreement than any of the other formularies, arguably, uh, to which Cranmer put his hand in. We've come to think of, I use we in a very kind of broad Anglican way, we've come to think of Cranmer as the architect of the prayer book tradition uh, only, but even that, to think of Cranmer as the great prayer book author and not, say, as the author uh, of the articles of the homelies or whatever. Excuse me, that was the sound of uh, McCulloch's Cranmer biography falling off my lap. one um, a time. That, yes, it is. Uh but that, you know, that in itself um, draws out Cranmer's significance in that way. So, all right, right. we've spent plenty of time getting in. I think we need to shift gears. We, let's let's move into the uh, let's move into the homilies themselves. So, Steve, uh, we want to hear you talk. G- give us a bit about Cranmer's overarching goals and and, and help us move uh, deeper into the homilies yeah. here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Let let me just pick up on one one thing you said there, Sam. It uh, was uh, pricking my conscience as you're talking. Uh, And it goes right to the heart of the debate about Cranmer. For those of us who call ourselves Anglican, do we stand, what kind of Cranmerian tradition do we stand in? Mm. Do we stand in people who are slavishly um, adhering to the Book of Common Prayer, 1662, which I would argue, is not even Cramner's greatest thing. I'd say 1552, but which is a slight like editorial uh, difference there. Um, do we play hard and fast with liturgy? And I know that certainly here in Australia and in other parts around the world, people are pushing the envelope there in terms of changing Anglican formularies to suit, um, uh, well, let's say, modern fashions and cultures. So Cramner is more than just... Uh, it's important for all Anglicans, I think, and particularly us in, in the Western world, and we're thinking here from an Australian perspective, a South African uh, perspective, an American perspective. Uh, and so let's just step outside the ecclesiastical history and think also more broadly mm-hmm, mm-hmm. about the British cultural legacy that Cramner has left for us. See, Cramner wouldn't have seen in 1556 that his prayer book, would have travelled with the British colonisers to the Thirteen Colonies, to South Africa, to Australia, New Zealand, Fiji, across the well, their world, India, Singapore, into Hong Kong, etc., around the world. Everywhere that the British went, the BCP went with them. Hmm. And so, Cranmer's legacy is much more than just containing inside the Anglican box. And I think that's an important yeah. point to make as well. Um, and is controversial not just within ecclesiastical circles, but but a, a little bit wider. Now, I pick on that point because of this. We often associate Cramner only with the prayer book or perhaps only with the doctrine of the formularies and the, the 42 articles which get reduced down into 39 articles. But if we think, uh, and I'm coming now from an evangelical uh, point of view uh, with my evangelical churchman uh, lens on, what is the quintessential cultural marker for an evangelical? I would argue perhaps two things here. One, adherence to uh, the doctrine of Scripture alone, the authority of Scripture, mm. and two, a preaching ministry. I don't want to underwrite, uh, undermine uh, the significance of the sacraments. I, I believe fully that baptism and the Lord's Supper are absolutely essential to the visible church here on earth as signs and symbols of of God's great covenant and promise. But we're about the preaching uh, ministry and also having that sit under the authority of Scripture. Now, I would argue that the evangelical movement uh, in Anglicanism, but outside of that, uh, in in the Baptist world and and, um, Presbyterian world as well, follow those same principles. Now, I'm not saying that Cramner was the only one who propagated a culture of preaching however going back to the original point the power of british culture that has exploded around the world and carried the cramnerian legacy it's not just the bcp that goes with it Mm. because the bcp the first one comes in 1549 then it gets edited a second edition in 1552 It's the 1563, uh, sorry, 1562 uh, edition, uh, the Elizabethan one that goes out and then you've got the 1662, uh, sorry, 1559 is the Elizabethan one. I'm getting my notes mixed up here. And then the 1662 that goes around the world. But embedded within that, right, in each of the services, and in particular the Lord's Supper service, is a, uh, a, a little text there that says, in the middle of the service, you have to have a sermon. Hmm. If the preacher is not capable of writing their own sermon, what do they read out? They read out a homily, hmm. coming from these first homilies that Kramner wrote, and then the second uh, set of homilies uh, under Elizabeth. So we need to also, coming full circle, hmm. appreciate that Kramner, certainly within the English-speaking world, establishes very much firmly part and parcel of the Sunday regular worship, a preaching culture. Mm. Now, why, why is this important? Now, your broader question, Sam, was about Cramner's um, uh, overarching goals, what does he want uh, and how to, how to homily sit within that. Um, well, I would argue that the key to Cramner's reform was about introducing Tudor men and women to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And how is the best way to do that in the clearest fashion? Is it through giving the Lord's Supper in both bread and wine? Is it through baptism? Well, yes, the sacraments are important. Is it about having a nice uh, formulation for a liturgy where people come in, uh, confess their sins, uh, hear the comfortable words, et cetera, et cetera? Yes, that's part of it. The word uh, as in scripture has to be there through it. But the best way to cut through all that and to get to the heart of the nobleman, the king, i.e. Henry VIII and uh, his family, right down to the ploughman, right, Mm. just as William Tyndale wanted, was to preach and to preach in the common tongue so that people could understand and respond to God in faith and repentance. Mm. And that, I think, is what Cranmer is all about. It's about elevating Scripture to the highest authority and making sure that that scripture is interpreted in the common tongue, so that people can understand it, mm. they can meet Jesus and respond to Him uh, in faith and repentance. There, so uh, let me just run through then. I guess the the big uh, moments of, of the of uh, Edward Cramner's uh, uh, reform, and most of it comes under Edward. So um, we see the, see this as the Edwardian Reformation from fifteen forty seven through fifteen fifty three. Um, but even before that, during Henry's reign uh, in 1540, when Henry finally allows a publication of the English translation of the Bible to be placed in every parish church throughout the kingdom, there is a preface that Cramner writes for that. And let me just uh, read a little quote about this. Uh, and he re some of this in, in the first homily uh, about reading scripture. He uh, Cramner wants us as personal individual readers but also as congregations to, and i quote here, ruminate and, as it were, chew the cud Mm. that we may have the sweet juice, spiritual effect, marrow, honey, kernel, taste, comfort, and consolation of them. That is uh, the scriptures Cramner has described uh, is the fat pastures of the soul. Mm. It is the heavenly meat. He wants us night and day to muse and have meditation and contemplation in them. And that is the only way that people, men and women and children, will come to know Jesus through the Scriptures. And where do homilies fit in with that? Well, the homilies, uh, the structure, which, Sam, I I think you'll take us through um, in a little while, start with uh, an exhortation to read the Scriptures, then it goes through and and, uh, elucidates on on, uh, salvation through Christ alone. Uh, but I think the key to understanding Cramner's reform and then everything that kicks out from that is, is about that key goal of introducing men and women uh, to the risen Lord Jesus through that. So um, I'll rush through the rest of, uh, I guess, Cramner's uh, big, I want to say milestones, they're not really milestones, I guess the um, the big moments that, that we remember. So the, the preface to the Great Bible in 1540 comes out, and then when Henry VIII dies and, and his son Edward VI comes to the throne, this is a real moment because Edward is an evangelical and his council are also very sympathetic, if not believers themselves, in the Re- Reformation. And so Cramner is able, to therefore, to um, get his whole liturgical um, wheels in motion. But, but we often forget this, that the very first liturgical reform that Cramner issues is the book of homilies mm-hmm. it's establishing this new culture of preaching in 1547 so within months of edward vi coming in uh the, the throne of england cramley the archbishop rather than issuing a new prayer book or issuing uh, a new act of parliament that will change doctrine etc he, he issues a book of sermons And then there's an act of parliament to ensure that these sermons are read around the the Tudor kingdom uh, every single week all the way through the year so that people are introduced to Jesus uh, through the scriptures uh, in that way. And that is the very first liturgical um, reform that Kremlin introduces. Uh, Now, uh, one final point on that is that we, we as Protestants tend to believe a sort of myth that Uh, preaching, a culture of preaching suddenly uh, evolved or or emerged with the Reformation. That's not actually historically accurate. There was a culture of preaching before the Reformation in medieval Europe. Um, However, the key difference was the content was moralistic, um, and it was about living a good life. It wasn't necessarily about upholding Christ and, and, and having the rule of scripture uh, over the top of it. One. Two, it was infrequent and irregular. Um, and, and three, local parish priests may not have been educated to, to a standard where they felt comfortable in writing their own sermons, let alone giving them as well. And so Kramer steps into this. And the homilies, therefore, in a sympathetic way, could be seen as as a as a necessary way to, to uh, step to to bridge that gap between the ill-equipped, uneducated priests who are at the forefront, the cold face of uh, ministry, and giving them the tools, the evangelical tools, to uh, allow. Um, I guess the parishioners, the men, women, the children in their local priest to, to meet Jesus um, uh, through that. So that's the first one, uh, the homilies, and then the prayer book comes along in 1549, and his good friend, uh, fellow reformer Martin Bootser um, uh, critiques it. The 1552 uh, version comes out, which is much more streamlined, not more evangelical. Um, and then uh, Edward VI dies in 1553. And so the wheels of reform start to to unravel. And um, as as Jake has summarized, um, Kravner meets his death in 1556. But I might throw it back to you, Sam, to to refocus our attention on the homilies and and the content of
0: them. Yeah, thanks, Steve. That's that's really good. I'd love to have the 1552-1662 conversation. Uh, We... uh, I think, yeah, to get it to get us into the homilies, I think maybe what we could do is, uh, let, let me just say a little bit about their structure. Um, I, I've found a lot of Ashley's work really good on this, Ashley Null. Um, so I'll, I'll try to recapitulate that um, simply, and, and then I'm keen that we get into it. So, I mean, I, I think the key concept that Ashley develops around this that I find so helpful is the idea of a rhetorical theology. Now, what on earth does that mean? Um, well, look at it this way. The... Authorship of the various uh, the, the various homilies—it's not as if they simply all flowed from Cranmer's pen, right? Um, some of them came from the pens of evangelical authors; others uh, didn't. And actually, one of the reasons that Stephen Gardner had been opposed—one uh, of the reasons he'd been opposed to a book of homilies—he um, thought, on the one hand, you know, what people need is the example of their clergy, not the arguments of their clergy. Okay, but. But another thing was just simply the fear of theological inconsistency, Um, and because of the sheer variegation of the homilies, that seemed, you know, reasonable, frankly. Um, So, for example, um, we don't know the identities of of many of the Edwardian homilists. Um, We know four identities for sure, and of those four, two were traditionalists. Okay, so the Archdeacon of London, John Harpsfield, who wrote the homily on sin. Edmund Bonner, Bishop of London, wrote the homily on love. Both of those doctrinal traditionalists, i.e. kind of um, Catholic leaning in their in their theology. Um, the other two were evangelicals. Cranmer, who wrote the three homilies on justification um, and probably also the homily on scripture. And then uh, uh, Thomas Bacon, Cranmer's chaplain, who composed the homily on Adultery. So, what what Null helps us to see is uh, a rhetorical theology, which Cranmer develops brilliantly by the way in which he arranges these homilies to give expression to a a, a Protestant. At this point, we might call it a a Lutheran or a Martinian uh, even satiriology. Um, so. L- let me try to explain what that means by giving an example of what it wasn't. So one option on offer would have been to develop a, quote, rhetorical theology along the lines of uh, of Erasmus, okay, the great Dutch humanist. Now, for Erasmus, the heart of Christianity was a program of love in action, giving you Ashley's words here, which sprang from a scriptural understanding of the human condition and the virtue and vices pertaining to it. So, what the preacher needs to do basically is to move the hearer's affections, so that we'll get really motivated by the love of God, and then we will choose to turn ourselves around and uh, and and start to exercise our moral industry. Right? That can almost almost sound evangelical, except. For the critical point that, unlike Luther, unlike Cranmer, um, there's there's this might be a complicated point to bring out here, but there's no there's no impulse so violent that reason can't restrain or redirect the will uh, uh, because of it. So it's a, it's essentially still a kind of moralistic scheme. Now, that's Erasmus. Another way of developing this, however, was to turn to Luther's protege, the great Philip Melanchthon, and um, and Melanchthon develops uh, quite a a different understanding, uh, founded on the bondage of the will, founded on the need for new affections, which are acquired through the agency from outside of us of the Holy Spirit coming and bestowing within the heart new godly affections, which replace the reigning human affection of self-love. Um, And if I can, just give us a line from Ashley, which I think is brilliant. With reason and will, both captive to the concupiscence, the, the, the lust of the flesh, only the intervention of an outside force, namely the Holy Spirit, could give humanity a new set of godly affections. The Spirit, then, working through God's word, assured believers of his promised salvation, engendering in them a faith which justified them before God and transformed their conduct." For confidence in God's gracious goodwill towards them reoriented the affections of the justified, calming their turbulent hearts and inflaming in them a grateful love in return. So it is not, as with Erasmus, a moralistic scheme. It is a case of the grace of God coming and addressing our guilt and inspiring a gratitude through the gift of a new heart and new affections engendering love. And so you see what Cranmer is doing here over the course, I'll just focus on the first six homilies, where this, um, in the first homily, a fruitful exhortation to the reading and knowledge of holy scripture, Cranmer establishes the basis of the Christian's relationship with God, because it's in the Bible that we gain true knowledge of ourselves, as well as true knowledge of God. And so proceeding from that, we get to the second sermon, right? From Harpsfield, the traditionalist, the misery of all mankind and of his condemnation to death everlasting by his own sin. Now, basically, Harpsfield's sermon on its own is a a chain of biblical injunctions to confession and repentance, basically Erasmian, right? But in Cranmer's hands, this thoroughly traditional homily, becomes a Protestant proclamation of the law, immediately preceding Cranmer's own three sermons expounding the gospel. So in the next three homilies, number three of the salvation of all mankind, number four of the true and lively faith, and number five of good works, Cranmer then follows Melanchthon and evangelical teaching in proceeding from that stinging exposition of the law to the life-giving exposition of the gospel. So in the homily of salvation, which we're going to hunker down on here in a few minutes, Cranmer goes on to emphasize the role of faith in justification, not because faith is its cause, it's Christ who justifies, but because faith is the instrument whereby man receives from God, right? And that is a gift. In the fourth and fifth homilies on faith and good works, um, Cranmer elaborates the teaching of the homily on, on salvation. A short declaration of the true, lively, and Christian faith unfolds the logic of of Cranmer's gospel exposition by elaborating the character of genuine Christian faith. Okay, that's going on through the fourth and fifth homilies. And then framed within that subtle exposition of the logic of, of evangelical the evangelical understanding of salvation, you then get to homily six, right? Written by the traditionalist Bishop Bonner. And this, what was a very kind of traditionalist homily on love now serves in this brilliant rhetorical scheme to provide the homilies' consummate expression of the life that we live now that we are assured of our salvation by grace alone through faith alone. So if, if Ashley's read of the homilies is right, I think it is, um, then here's just a, a glimpse of what Cranmer is up to, uh, at least in these first six homilies, and that, that work into... The, the understanding and the living out of the new life then carries on through the remainder, at least to the first book of homilies in 1547. Um, we could say a little bit more about the Elizabethan homilies in 1563. Um, I think we're, we've run out of time for that. So I think, let's let's move on. Let's zero in on the homily of salvation, shall we?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think you're now in terms of the, well, Ashley, as you have now a paraphrase of Ashley now uh, very succinctly, In terms of the structure of of the first six homilies in the in the um, Edwardian uh, book of homilies, and at the apex, the zenith of all that is this this homily of salvation. Mm. And I just, as we kick off here, I want to really home in on the um, the title because this is this is more um, it's bigger, more huge, more significant than I think. people actually give it credit for. Yeah. So the, the, uh, the title is A Sermon of the Salvation of Mankind by Only Christ Our Saviour from Sin and Death Everlasting. Mm. Now, there's a lot in there. Two things that stand out for me, by Only Christ, mm. that is massive. That's like sending a massive load of dynamite underneath uh, the medieval Catholic church that had sort of been there it had also a massive ton of dynamite underneath the uh, weird Henrician church and the doctrinal um, tug of war that had gone on in the previous decade. Now, for the first time, unambiguously in every single parish church, this is the doctrine: by Christ alone, only through Christ is our salvation uh, assured and that's the other bit there it's an assurance the security that we have in Christ um which is which is the other bit of of the title from sin and death okay fine that's exactly what the pope and, and uh all those uh, other bishops and priests have been preaching mm. salvation from sin and death the last word there everlasting that is sweet comfort mm. right there it's absolutely assurance where's purgatory doesn't exist If you have your faith in Christ only, then we are saved from sin and death everlasting. In this life, although the devil will continue to attack attack us and tempt us, lead us into despair and and down the wrong track, Mm. but actually we have a real sure confidence and assurance in Christ so that when we die or if Christ returns, we know exactly where we're going. Mm. There, There isn't that confusion we don't have to spend time in purgatory, and and uh, we don't have to, you know, pay money into into the offertory coffers to earn our way in. We don't have to do our rosary beads. You don't have to help an old lady across the road. It's already good one on the cross for us. And and, and I think the title alone is, is worth just sitting and chewing the cud, so to speak, if I can paraphrase. Yeah, 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 yeah,
2: yeah. Man, that, that's fantastic, Stephen. Like as Steve has said, now with the title already kind of pitching the homily, what to expect. The homily of salvation then starts with an emphatic declaration that really captures the essence of the homily. And I think it's worth reading the opening two sentences of this homily in full. So the homily declares that, and I quote, because all men be sinners and offenders against God and breakers of his law and commandments, therefore can no man by his own acts, works, and deeds seem they never so good, be justified and made righteous before God. But every man of necessity is constrained to seek for another righteousness or justification to be received at God's own hands, that is to say the remission and pardon and forgiveness of his sins and trespasses in such things as he hath offended. And this justification or righteousness Which we so receive by God's mercy and Christ's merits embraced by faith is taken, accepted, and allowed of God for our perfect and full justification. So, just in these two opening sentences of the homily, one can see Cranmer and the Church of England's official position that we have no merit of our own to serve for our justification, and therefore we need to look for another righteousness an alien righteousness, as Luther put it, mm.
0: Mm. which
2: is found in Christ and his merits alone, which of God's mercy we receive when we embrace it by faith. Yeah.
1: And, and you know, when I first read this homily, and, and it's, it, it still is, it seems a little bit odd because I think, Jack, you picked up absolutely that that first paragraph absolutely nails it, coming out of the title. And then the very next point Kremner makes here, I'll just read it, I'll read it slowly so the uh, listeners can can hear through my Aussie twang. Cramner uh, goes on. The efficacy of Christ's passion and oblation. And then this is the weird bit that sticks out for me. In so much that infants being baptised and dying in their infancy uh, by this sacrifice washed from their sins, brought to God's favour and made his children and inheritors of his kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on. Uh, and they which in act or deed do sin after their baptism, so this is uh, people who have grown out of the infancy, when they turn again to God unfoundedly, they are likewise washed by this sacrifice from their sins, in such sort that there remains not any spot of sin that shall be imputed to their damnation. Now, my question is why has Cramner suddenly jumped from uh, this cataclysmic uh, concept of? salvation by faith alone, and then suddenly baptism. Mm. Like that doesn't, to our 21st century years, and certainly in low church circles uh, that I hail from, uh, baptism seems a bit, a bit of an odd thing. It's got nothing to do with salvation. But actually, this is again, I guess what I, uh, uh, touching back on what, what I said previously and, and, and um, Sam Drake said, Cranmer is, and this is what Ashley Nell taught me very, uh, very early on in my studies. Cranmer is, is a theological um, a, a dynamo. You know, he, he is absolutely key on doctrine, mm. but he is such a pastoral. He's got the, such a pastoral heart. He is a pastor first and foremost, mm. and he's speaking to the congregation's heart. And so you've got to remember that in the culture of the day. Before the Tudor kingdom had, uh, I guess, accepted the Reformation, what is the starting point of salvation, of the economy of soteriology in medieval Europe and in uh, some Catholic circles today? It is baptism. And then you go on to the other uh, sacrament, the life of sacraments that you lead. And so what Cranmer is doing here very pastorally is nailing into the the culture of the day, he's saying, Look, baptism, yes, is key, but it's not actually uh, the thing that saves you. However, baptism is the entry point into the church here. What he's saying is the efficacy for our salvation is not in baptism and the water there, but is actually in Christ's passion and oblation on the cross. Mm. And so that when you receive that sign of the covenant being washed, renewed, like in John 3, when Nicodemus says, How can I enter, you know, re enter my mother's womb now that I'm a grown man? Well, that's what baptism uh, signifies there uh, a rebirth, a re washing. Uh, and it's pointing back to Jesus on the cross. It's got nothing to do with you being baptized or the priest baptizing you. Um, so I think that needed a little bit of unpacking for our modern ears, but that, uh, that's a brilliant way that Cram turns the prevailing theology and culture on its head. To underline the evangelical and biblical truths that he wanted to uh, propagate through these through these homilies.
0: I really like that, Steve. Yeah, thank you for that. And you know, I the, the point about the pastoral heart of Cranmer is also well made and well received. I think um, this is a, just a parenthetical note. I there's there is a trend towards um, keen, bright people who take their faith seriously and love learning mm-hmm. to say i'm going to go and get a phd and I, and i and i always want to say it's us I, I know it i know it's us and I, and I, <laughs> and i always want to say um don't do it like don't do it go if pray that god will give you the grace to go into the ministry you know and uh, yeah. and and, I, and i'm not i'm not i hope no one mishears me i, I uh, but it's just that you're you're right it's this this theology in a way is the is the medium for in a sense is a medium for yeah. this fundamental pastoral task which Christ has committed to yeah. Uh, yeah. to his people so uh, okay. End. End. parentheses I love that I did my PhD. I'm not questioning that, right? I, I have, I'm simply observing things in, in the in the um, in the world and wanting to. If if someone happens to be listening to this and thinking, oh gosh, I ought to go and do a PhD, I want to say, no, <laughs> oh, uh, not necessarily, right? Um, okay. It's
1: about assurance. Sorry to cut you off. There. It's about assurance here as well, you know. So. Mm. Through the medieval soteriology, people never had an assurance. That's why they had to be baptized, get confirmed, yeah. etc. you know, married yeah. or uh, priest, whatever. But Cranmer here has just he said yeah, he's not undermining the seriousness and significance of baptism.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But He's saying we have assurance of salvation through yeah. Christ and not through baptism. So to just get on your point there about PhDs or pursuing even uh, theological study. We don't need to prove ourselves to anyone through our studies or how high we can go with our academia, et cetera. Yeah. We all, even now, we believe in the same Christ, and so we all have that assurance. And so I think there's another pastoral point that you can point out there, Sam, as well. Um, you don't have to have a PhD or in a, a university. You don't even need to finish high school mm-hmm. to have yeah. an assurance in Jesus. That's right. And that's, that's how good the gospel is, is for, for everyone from the highest down to the lowest.
0: That's, that's so good. Right, so, having having said all of this, to make a slightly theological point now, <laughs> um, that that uh, another thing that I've that I've loved about this that David Steinmetz, one of my favorite late um, historians, mm-hmm. uh, he he said so. There's a, a chap, a Lutheran theologian, Andreas Osiander, right? His wife's niece wound up. Marguerite Cranmer. I mean, that, that was it, was Ossiander's wife's niece who wound up marrying Cranmer. And I, I think, am I right that Ossiander actually did the wedding? Um,
1: yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think you're
0: right. So there's a little remark in Steinmetz that if Ossiander is the apostle of Christ's work in us, then Cranmer was the evangelist for the work of God for us. And I really love that, and that mm. that comes through in this homily so clearly. So um, the tradition of, of understanding Christ's work as um, the the. The, the perfect act simultaneously of God's justice and mercy right like go, going back finding expression in Anselm but certainly in, in people long before it just comes out very clearly in this line from the homily the wisdom the, excuse me the great wisdom of God in this mystery of our redemption who hath so tempered his justice and mercy together that he would neither by his justice Condemn us unto the everlasting captivity of the devil and his prison of hell, remediless forever without mercy. Right, okay, the thing that we deserve. Nor by his mercy deliver us clearly without justice or payment of a just ransom. But with his endless mercy, he joined his most upright and equal justice. And I just, I mean, this is a point that continually over the years has brought me back to to just, a, a, just, it's brought me back to my knees in, in worship. Every time I, I think some, some of us will constant, we'll, we'll move more towards one or the other, right? We'll be justice people or we'll be mercy people. <laughs> we'll, be, mm. we'll, be, uh, we'll be license or um, law people. And I, I think what Cranmer does so beautifully is he, he holds this way of the gospel. It's not, a, it's not that it's the middle way, it's that it's a higher way. Um, it's God and coming out of right there at the start of that line. I mean, God's infinite wisdom, the only wise God who could have done this. Mm. Um, it's a beautiful, a beautiful thing that he highlights. Yeah, absolutely.
1: I think it's fair. Yeah. Spot on, Sam. I agree. Oh, hardly. The other thing I love about this is, and, and you picked up on it in terms of Kram is harking back to Anselm, but it's not just one old church doctor. It's, it's, he talks about all the old doctors that, that agree in faith and doctrine yeah, and uh, from the apostles there and, and in other writings of Cranmer of and other reforms. This is one of their key things. This is not a newfangled thing, the Reformation, uh, unveiling the beauties of Scripture and, and revealing Christ through there. This is the old religion, hmm. going right back to Abraham, revealed by faith and and. For me, just stepping outside of Cramner as a Reformation historian, this is possibly, uh, I want to say, the most um, encouraging thing for me as a historian is is to be reminded, and humbling as as much as encouraging, is to be reminded that we stand um, not so much on the shoulders of giants, but shoulder to shoulder with giants. Like I cannot wait to get into heaven and meet Cramner on John Hooper and shake their hand and give him a hug and Martin Bootser. So thank you for your encouragement. And others like J.C. Ryle a bit more um, recently and John Stott, for instance. But these people, you know, we are part of a church that stretches right back to Adam and uh, all the way through the Bible. And Cramner and the other reformers, I love this point here in this homily, but, but in so many other writings, they make this point that we are part of an historic church that has been here time immemorial and is eternal and the link is God's Spirit, and obviously by faith we enter that church, which is uh, continuing on. And, and I just love that um, as another pastoral point. I guess we're taking out of that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
2: absolutely. It's encouraging to see that this doctrine of justification by faith was not only taught in Scripture, but was embraced by uh, many early church fathers. It's not a it's not a novelty. Uh, as, as was sometimes the charge against yeah. against it during the Reformation. And another uh, th- accusation that was often uh, thrown at this do- doctrine of justification by faith alone, which is so clearly proclaimed in this homily, is that, uh, is that it leads to licentiousness. it leads to antinomianism. Mm-hmm. It means that because we if faith is the big thing, if we have faith, then that's all that's sufficient for salvation, then we can live like we want. That was at least the accusation against it. But the homily is abundantly clear that although it is faith alone that embraces the righteousness of Christ by which we are justified, yet this justifying faith is necessarily accompanied or followed by repentance and good works. Though good works are, in the words of the homily, excluded from the office of justifying. So they accompany accompany justifying faith, but good works are not part of the actual justifying, they, have, they bring nothing to that. And it was important for the homily to state this clearly, not only to reflect the biblical teaching that Christians are saved in order to live holy lives marked by good works, but also to dispel accusations, as I said, of papists that the doctrine of justification by faith alone leads to licentiousness and antinomianism. It doesn't, because true justifying faith is lively and is always followed by sanctification. So the homily leaves no ground for a false carnal security. The Christian is called to good works. The homily is also clear, by the way, that it is not the act of faith as such that justifies us, but Christ as received by faith. And I think Sam also touched on this earlier.
0: That's so good. I And Jake... Isn't it also the case that faith, right? It's not the faith that we're talking about. is not mere assent. It is what the 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 old theologians would call fiducia. It's trust. Yes, absolutely. It's tight. Mm. It's tightrope walking faith, right? Or, or, or rather, the willingness in the, in the great um, uh, Charles Blondine illustration of, of of getting in the wheelbarrow and being walked across the tightrope. And and what I love about this is that this this trust. It is sure and certain confidence not in anything about us. My son, the other day, uh, he said, he said, Daddy, do you know what the difference is between, I love his heart. He said, Daddy, do you know what the difference is between David and Goliath? And I said, What, Brooks? And he said, "Um, David's big. And I said, Well, what do you mean? And he said, David has a big faith. (coughs) And I said, I said, yeah, and I I wondered how do I handle this, how do I handle this moment? I mean, it was such a lovely interaction. I said, yeah, David, David does have a big faith. But um, but you know, isn't the big thing, buddy? David's got faith in a big God. Um, it's the one in whom we trust, right? Yeah. Not the faith that we bring to the table. It's the fact that God has stepped up to the plate. So there's this lovely line that um that faith is a, a Assure and certain confidence, and here's the line that God would fulfill His pledge to bring the believer to eternal life. Since by His promise, God has made Himself a debtor, so to do. Um, friends, I think that's the last thing I want to say on the subject. That I'm looking at time. I think we've reached. I think we've reached time. Any parting shots before we before we close shop?
1: Can I just can I quote Ashley Null? Can I do that? You
0: can always quote Ashley Null, Steve. (laughs) Thanks,
1: mate. Um, I don't know if this will bring a tight conclusion to our conversation or not, but this is uh, this is what Ashley says, and is Cramner's intention behind the book of uh, homilies. He says uh, to. I'm paraphrasing now, uh, about getting the doctrine of grace out there so that our hearts are turned by God's spirit to love God in return because, and now I'm quoting Ashley, grace produces gratitude, gratitude births love, love prompts repentance, repentance issues forth good works, good works make for a better society. So it's, I, I just wanted to uh, leave the listener, well, at least close my, my part, saying that it's, the Christian faith is not an individual affair. It's personal, deeply personal. You have to have a personal relationship with Jesus. But it is a communal affair as much as anything as well. And I think the homilies, as we've stressed today, is about that faith in Christ alone and then leading to, uh, to repentance and good works. And, and Ashley um,
0: certainly says that so succinctly. Amen. Amen. Well, guys, let's, let's wrap up. Thank you, uh, Steve, Jake. Thank you both so much uh, for, for chatting today.
1: Absolute pleasure. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me on.
0: Thanks guys. Yeah, absolutely. Alice, we miss you. We look forward to having you back. Um, And um, welcome. um, Welcome little baby girl. Um, Friends. Thanks for listening. This has been uh, another episode of the Ridley Institute podcast on this, uh, this wonderful new Parker society series. Please do remember to leave a review if and only if you have enjoyed this episode <laughs> and uh, <laughs> please do join us again next time the next installment of our new Parker Society series will look again at Cranmer in the meantime we will have uh, further upcoming conversations of uh, standard issue Ridley Institute podcast uh, really excited about uh, a few more conversations before breaking for summer Grace Olmsted uh, Jake Meter and Norman Wiersba, all in the weeks to come. In the meantime, thanks so much for listening. Uh, I'm Sam Forniker, and this has been the Ridley Institute Podcast.